This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Madison Connaughton, editor of the Saturday paper, joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics. We particularly look at the sexual assault allegations in politics, as well as the Aged Care Royal Commission findings. Then, author and former war correspondent Elizabeth Becker joined me to talk about three brilliant women war reporters on the front line during the Vietnam War. This is all detailed in her new book, You Don't Belong Here, How Three Women Rewrote the Story of War. Then, finally, biographer Jacqueline Kent joined me to discuss her book, Vida, A Woman for Our Time, which examines the lives of women activists and politicians who shaped Victoria, including suffragist Vida Goldstein. I want to welcome onto the program Madison Connaughton. She's the editor of the Saturday paper and uh, she's been pretty busy as have her correspondents, including uh, some correspondents that whose work we will be referring to today, as well as a number of other journalists who've been holding the light up to the Scott Morrison coalition government, particularly in two key areas, uh, the sexual assault and rape allegations that have been surrounding politics for a number of weeks now. Um, And we're also going to be talking about the Aged Care Royal Commission and the final report that was, in fact, tabled last Monday, not yesterday, but the Monday before. Um, Amidst all of this turbulence and crisis um, that was and still is uh, enveloping Morrison's government. So it did, as I said earlier, really miss its time to shine. And uh, Richard Dennis and I did mention the political motivations potentially around the timing of that report release and also the fact that journalists couldn't even read it by the time they had to rush to the press conference. So uh, anyway, there's a lot to be sceptical about the, in this um this day and age in federal politics. And to hold up the light to that is Madison Connaughton. Thanks so much, Madison, for joining me today. Thanks for having me and for that very um, generous introduction. I'll try and live up to it. (laughs) (laughs) We all just do our best, don't we, in this difficult time. And I mean, I've got to say, I've been really struck and also impressed by the phenomenal women journalists in Australia who have just stepped up immeasurably, like, Honestly, there's been so many, so much on Twitter, for example, of people sharing great journalistic pieces across TV, radio and print from uh, women who've been writing particularly about these um, sexual assault and rape allegations over the past three weeks and the fact that they really have been offering a very insightful view of uh, what's been happening recently. Would that be your take as well, that we've... that it has been a really standout moment for women in journalism. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that the best journalism makes sense of the world, right? Like it gives us a, a sort of way or a map to understand what's happening in our lives. And I think that there have been some incredible like female journalists um, writing pieces in the last couple of weeks that, that do just that. Uh, I guess, you know, Louise Milligan stands out, Sam Maiden, um, Catherine Murphy, uh, Annabelle Crabb, um, Laura Tingle, and um, also Karen Middleton, who works at Saturday Paper. Um, I, I think the thing that sort of um, 
binds those women together um, is that they've all spent a lot of time in the Canberra Press Gallery and I think understand, um, other than Louise Milligan actually, but they they understand the dynamics of what is happening in that place um, and have probably, you know, watched these behaviours um, play out on sort of a, a less... Um, extreme level but I think the level of misogyny in that in that building in that workplace the level of sexism that they come up against um I think you know has given them life experience to write about these things in a really poignant and instructive way um and I think Amy Ramikas is another to mention as well she she wrote a piece for the Guardian that, that just really I think I saw shared everywhere and, and really spoke to the kind of culture of Parliament House and, and what it's like to try and um, work there as a journalist but also as a staffer. Mm, yeah, I absolutely think following Amy is a must on Twitter and reading everything she says. She always has really great insights. Um, interestingly as well, over the weekend, I think it was on Saturday on ABC Radio, I also heard Nikki Sava interviewed on AM, I believe it was, um, and she is a past advisor to John Howard and Peter Costello. So she has a true understanding of the Liberal Party and their culture and also has that um, historic memory, institutional memory that other journalists like Laura Tingle has that goes, you know, quite far back in terms of the history of Parliament. And she was quite um, astounded at the the actions and behaviours of the politicians and the way that they've been responding or not responding to this issue. And she did say um, that, and I'm going to paraphrase here, that uh, with Scott Morrison and his um, reaction to all of these issues, including um, the Brittany Higgins issue, including um, the more recent allegations against the Attorney General, Christian Porter, that she said, you know, in the past, we would have just called this this guy, our Prime Minister, he's just a bloke that doesn't get it. Um, and she, you know, used descriptive terms like in terms of the response, the government response, um, saying things like appalling, pathetic. So, you know, you're seeing journalists assess the government's performance um, in an overall sense because we have seen so many issues fall under the one kind of um, umbrella, so to speak, and and saying, you know, quite scathing reviews really about, um, about how the government has been performing. And it only really can be compared with in terms of the, the current kind of level of how is this happening to perhaps the bushfire response um, from the Morrison government when there was similarly a kind of I don't hold a hose mate um, approach to from Scott Morrison, he also said uh, similar words to the press on the Thursday after our after the Christian Porter uh, press conference. He said, "You see, I'm not the commissioner of police." Mm-hmm. He said, "I'm not the police force. I have given it to the police to investigate." So we've seen so many kind of deflections and disinterest, and even people like Catherine Murphy say that this prime minister is passive. Um, he's not acting. So I wondered what your assessment is. Maybe we can um, weave that into the story of what has happened since Tuesday last week, because so much has happened, um, which Four Corners very beautifully laid out last night in a poignant and um, sharp and uh, clear way. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess the the major thing that's happened since uh, last Tuesday is that Christian Porter came forward um, on Wednesday and named himself as the cabinet minister. Um, accused of um, historical rape allegations um, in a press conference uh, in Perth, actually. He wasn't in Canberra. He was he was over in Perth um, and issued a denial. I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk about it, it being a vigorous denial or a vehement denial. I think it's just important to say that it's a denial. Um, and he was quite adamant that none of the things that had been printed um, had happened uh, also said uh, that he had not been approached by journalists ahead of the publishing of um, the original story, um, which was the the story about the letter being sent to um, Penny Wong, Sarah Hansen Young, in the Prime Minister's office, um, outlining uh, the the woman's allegations um, and. Uh, there was a letter and also a, a sort of 30-page dossier as well, which she had written um, and sort of prepared for her lawyer in, in preparation for making a statement to the police, which she was never uh, actually able to make um, before she passed away last year um, by suicide. Um, so that press conference, I think, was pretty extraordinary. I, I don't know, Amy, if you've ever seen anything like that in Australian politics. I certainly haven't. Um, I think it felt, you know, Annabelle Crabb on the weekend referred to this whole sort of um, saga as operatic, and I do feel like it, it has this kind of um, extremity to it that, that I haven't really seen um, in politics uh, in a really long time. I guess, the, the, as you said, the bushfires probably feel like the same level of stakes um, and the same sort of mishandling by the government. And I guess the thing that really stands out to me and I think to a lot of women and a lot of survivors is that the Prime Minister is um, adamant that he has not read the dossier that was sent to his office um, and Christian Porter has also not read the dossier um, at his latest um, sort of the last time he was asked about it, um, he had not read it. Uh, on the weekend on Insiders, Peter Van Onselen, um, so that was on Sunday, reiterated that um, Christian Porter had not had not read the dossier, had not been able to get a copy of it apparently. Um, but I think that there's this real feeling, um, you know, I, I think some commentators have said this already, but, you know, are, are women's stories not important enough to the Prime Minister that he won't even read them? Um, and I think that that really strikes home for a lot of people. Um, look, I think there's questions about why he wouldn't, would or wouldn't have read it. I think, you know, if it's, it's easy if you have not read a document to, to not be asked specific questions about it, um, like the strategic part of why you might not read something like that um, in terms of like fronting the media. But I think that, you know, the Prime Minister says these things. He's not the Commissioner of Police. That's correct. He's not. Um, he's not the head of this investigation. Anything like that. That that's all correct. Um, but he is the Prime Minister of the country, and so his actions, I think, do um, have to be at a higher standard than, you know, an average person. And I think at the moment. Um, most people in the community are saying we wouldn't um, we wouldn't accept this leadership from a CEO of a company or the head of a sporting organisation or something like that. We wouldn't accept that they just said that they wouldn't read it and they wouldn't engage with any sort of process in investigating it. Um, 
other than a coronial inquiry, of course, which might happen in South Australia. But I think that a lot of people are saying that, you know, this isn't acceptable in terms of leadership from the Prime Minister, that he needs to step up and kind of, you know, step forward. Um, but I think that, that that sort of is swirling around this question of an independent inquiry and whether something like that needs to happen in order to, um, you know, settle the matter. Um, and, and then obviously there's a lot of um, questions about whether that would settle the matter or, or how it would work. Um, I guess the the view from the government is that um, an independent inquiry would be um, – a kangaroo court or, or something like that, like it would be mob justice. I think we've heard that term often, um, you know, that an inquiry would subvert the rule of law, that it would subvert natural justice. Um, I think that all of these things are really interesting questions for legal scholars, um, but they're also sort of they're sort of ignoring the fact that the government would set the terms of such an inquiry, right, if it was an internal um, inquiry within Cabinet. And Cabinet is unlike any workplace in the country. The Prime Minister can hire and fire whoever he wants for whatever reason, um, and there is no sort of, you know, unfair dismissal or anything like that. Um, so the fact that this would this inquiry wouldn't happen within terms that the government was comfortable with, um, I think, is is kind of ridiculous to suggest. But there's also a question of, I guess, for me, I, I think that the prime minister and the attorney general seem quite afraid of creating a precedent um, for an inquiry like this, and that's um, you know that's their prerogative, they, you know, if they want to do something like this, it is actually the Prime Minister's decision. But I think it's worth raising the parallel that um, if somebody in Parliament was to, who worked as a staffer or who worked as a minister or who worked as a bureaucrat raises um, an issue of sexual assault or harassment, um, I don't think that the bar should be a criminal one, and so it flows that if the the only bar for um, for um, you know action against a minister is if they are charged with a criminal offence, a lot of women don't feel comfortable going to the police um, with an allegation like this, and a lot of them don't want to participate in in the legal system around a complaint of, of abuse, uh, of sexual abuse, because the system is really, really terrible to survivors. Um, and obviously in this situation, the accuser is not living, but I think that there's a, there's a very concerning precedent being set if there is no independent inquiry as well, because that means that if a woman um, sort of comes forward in parliament and says, this happened to me, but I don't feel comfortable going to the police, then the the offers on the table to her is, well, you can leave or you can work with this man that you're accusing of doing um, doing this to you. And I think that that's concerning as well. And it's kind of, you know, the Prime Minister is missing that concerning precedent that's being set by not having an inquiry. Mm. Well, it reminds me of what Annabelle Crabb said on Insiders that made absolute sense. And what you're talking about here is that we really have a, a complete vacuum when it comes to procedure when it comes to political action, uh, the as you said, the government and particularly the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, chooses who will stay in his cabinet and every day and every hour um, it could change depending on what does happen. And we've seen other ministers 
um, you know, get cut very quickly and very easily over seemingly uh, lesser things. Um, this is something which does need to be explored because they are allegations, as people have said, against our top lawmaker or the person who really oversees the whole justice system. So they oversee, you know, the judges, they oversee barristers, solicitors, the laws of the land at a federal level. That also do include um, these laws that relate to these cases that we're talking about as well, or at least complaints that we've heard that some of which won't move on to legal proceedings. Um, one of the things that I was interested in when you were talking about the Prime Minister not having read that document, I mean, I think, and I wonder what your thoughts are, that it is a quite valid criticism to wonder that if the Prime Minister seeks assurances from his own Cabinet Minister that they have conducted themselves um, with, you know, a clean conscience in terms of what um, these allegations are, and the, the Prime Minister doesn't actually know what these allegations are in their detail because he hasn't read the document, and he's asking this of the person who um, is on the receiving end of the allegations, and that person hasn't read the document that actually lays out these allegations, how can the Prime Minister have confidence about that person's response and how can that person confidently respond to allegations they haven't actually read in full? Mm. Yeah, I mean, look, I think by this point it would be um, unbelievable if Christian Porter didn't understand the, you know, the substance of what he's being accused of um, and what he is denying um, because it has been so, you know, thoroughly reported um, in the media. Um, but I think that the there is a gap there, right, which is which is sort of, I guess, the space where, where people are saying there should be an independent inquiry in that this is not a um, situation where... I, I guess, I mean, and you have to be careful with things like this because, of course, Christian Porter is um, completely afforded the presumption of innocence that um, that holds, and I don't think that that's um, that is contravened by having a um, independent inquiry. But I, I think that we've we're in a dynamic at the moment where um, an accusation cannot be guilt, and that. That is true. Like, that is correct. An accusation cannot just immediately equate to guilt. But I think the, the you know, counterfactual of that is that a, a denial cannot immediately mean innocence. Like, it can't be the only thing that um, equates to, you know, the Prime Minister being comfortable that, that nothing happened and this behaviour is not something that's of concern of him and not of concern that the first law officer of the country has been accused of something this serious and it seems to be a credible, serious allegation that he denies. But I think that that kind of that balance in um, the legal system is a little bit confusing in this situation and I guess is probably confusing more generally in how women sort of navigate the legal system when, and it is usually women who, when they're, um, making an allegation of sexual assault because it's a dynamic and, you know, I think that people have written about this really incredibly, like I think of Brie Lee's book um, Eggshell Skull but also Louise Milligan's book Witness, um, kind of about how the legal system treats women who come forward with allegations of sexual assault and that the system is really stacked against them and um, potentially that the, you know, 
the presumption of innocence sort of flowing to a denial equals innocence um, dynamic is kind of concerning and probably wouldn't be okay for most workplaces. Like I think that, um, you know, this has been said, but like I think that most companies would have HR processes in place to investigate things like this, even if they don't raise, rise to the level of the police launching a criminal investigation or laying charges. Um, or in, you know, the sporting world, um, there's there's been processes developed over time because there's been so much public backlash um, to how, you know, the NRL or AFL has, has um, responded to accusations of sexual assault by players where they are stood aside and there's, you know, an internal process as well as the criminal process that, that runs through the police. And I think the the prime minister should be leading the way on this not not following um and should be there should be better standards in parliament house than there there are elsewhere not not worse standards or at least there should be the same standards mm, well there is actually a cabinet like a ministerial code of conduct that does set out um, standards for ministers. It is a little bit vague. In... It's a very vague document, <laughs> I would say. Yeah, and in the enforcement because it really is uh, Scott Morrison to be the chief enforcer of this document, um, essentially. So it depends, you know, what prime minister you have. And Malcolm Turnbull um, was featured last night on Four Corners talking about his discussion with um, Christian Porter about other allegations that had been made about his um professional conduct uh, and with staffers, for example, who were seen in a bar with him. Um, One thing that I wanted to close out on on this issue is really the fact that, and what others have also brought up, is that if there is this kind of stalemate, which is we won't conduct an independent investigation at arm's length from the Cabinet and at arm's length from the government by a judicial officer who is retired, for example. Um, If that does not occur, and obviously because New South Wales Police has has said uh, that their case uh, is essentially closed, they never interviewed Christian Porter because um, the woman who has made the allegation um, and last night Four Corners named her Kate... She said that um, she, you know, had gone to police, she had um, met with them and discussed the allegations uh, a number of times and that she had eventually um, contacted police on, uh, let me just double-check the time of it, on the 23rd of June 2020, she sent detectives an email indicating she no longer felt able to proceed with reporting the matter, citing medical and personal reasons. Um, she then, the the strike force replied to that email the day after and then um, the day after that they found out that um, the woman, the complainant, had passed away. So that closes out that avenue that the Prime Minister has put forward as being the solution. It's It's been the the reason why he says there's nothing for him to actively deal with at the moment because he sent it off to the police. Now they've said, well, the police has closed the matter, so that closes the issue. But the issue doesn't necessarily become closed in politics, does it, Madison, in terms of the questions that we've just been discussing about ministerial standards, if that isn't an avenue for Christian Porter to prove his innocence um, in a court of law, then what is there in terms of 
the um, being able to test these allegations and being able to have closure for both sides in terms of the friends who are advocating for Kate and also um, for Christian Porter who denies the allegations. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's a perfect solution to this that offers resolution to everyone. Like, but I does think there need a... to be a solution is my question from yeah. a political standpoint because people people have discussed the kind of politics of this situation, which does seem, you know, um, impersonal and terrible, but the fact is politics is different from real life. So I'm wondering more on that front, um, you know, does the government have to make a response? Is this going to just keep going and going until something um, more satisfactory happens that most of Australians that I've at least seen would expect to happen in a workplace, for example? I mean, look, I, I don't think that the government is at the moment um, trying to confect a procedural sort of response to this. Like, it does seem that their tactic is dig in and um, wait it out. Um, like, it will pass, another news story will come and and wash this away and there will be some something else for the public to focus on. I don't know if that is the correct, you know, tactic. I, I think that this is sticking to Scott Morrison um, and to his government in a way that few things have during his prime ministership, um, potentially even more than his response to the bushfires. I think this has really struck a chord with people, not least because I think the descriptions of, of the woman who has made these accusations um, against the Attorney General, she seems like an incredible person, you know, like she's she's really been made human by some of the reporting um, about her and the testimonies of her friends and I think that that's kind of a really important part of the dynamic of this story. Um, I would say that the, the test is going to be when Parliament returns um, next week. It's, it's going to be... Um, very, very intense. Um, obviously, um, I, I believe that I, I don't think the Christian Port has made any statement about um, when exactly he'll be back, but it was sort of implied from his press conference that he would be back for Parliament's return, um, which will be interesting. Um, but I think that this is a huge weakness for the government and will be something that is, you know, politically, you know, very useful for um, for opponents of the government. Um, but I think that the, that the ultimate, I mean, does, does Scott Morrison want to drag this out until the election? I think that's the question that he's facing right now. Does he want to carry, um, the attorney general all the way to the election? And then the voters of Pierce will decide whether they're comfortable reelecting him, um, to that position. I think that that's, that's a really, um, that's a really dire prospect for the Prime Minister, especially when he only has um, a one-seat majority in the House of Representatives um, after Craig Kelly moved to the crossbench. But um, that's the prospect that he faces, and I think that that's probably why we're seeing this digging in, right, because mm. there is no desire to lose um, more members. And I'm not saying that Christian Porter would walk if he was put on the on the backbench, but I think that there's a really conservative, you know, rump in the 
in the coalition that would see that these, you know, would say that these allegations are that the, you know, the commentary we've heard, like this is quote a, a witch hunt. This is the, you know, this is um, mob justice. This is the internet, you know, PC warriors on the internet. Like I think that there would be a, a section of the coalition that if there was disciplinary action taken against the attorney general, they would think that that is, you know, ridiculous and the prime minister giving in to um, progressives and all of that sort of thing. And, so I think that his maybe his audience that he's thinking about the prime minister is not actually the Australian public at the moment. It's it's the conservative part of his party, which is not. I don't think that's the way to lead when you have a situation like this, which is really a national reckoning about how women are treated in the workplace and and also you know at the extreme end of that of of how um, how we deal with allegations of sexual assault. Mm. Well, just finally on that point, before we get to aged care, um, one of the other parts of this story, which we had been discussing on this show earlier on, was um, the allegations made by Brittany Higgins. She alleges that she was raped in Defence Minister um, Reynolds' office on the couch in her office. Um, and this is something that has had a kind, a kind of ongoing life in terms of the back and forth of what we've been learning through the media, through reporting, and also Brittany, from Brittany herself. Um, and we had seen at the end of last week in the Australian newspaper reports that um, Minister Reynolds apparently had called Brittany Higgins a, quote, lying cow, and that was... Um, supposedly in uh, her in relation not to the allegation itself, but Brittany Higgins's claims that she didn't feel supported enough by that office and the minister as well. And um, we have seen now that yesterday uh, we heard Minister Reynolds, who is currently on leave on the advice of her cardiologist, will now have her leave extended based on medical advice until April the 2nd, which is the week after the next parliamentary sitting period finishes and is also the last sitting period before the May 11 budget session. It also means that she will miss the March Senate estimates. So there has been been criticism around um, Minister Reynolds in terms of the the, the way that she responded to those um, reports in the media about what she apparently said about Brittany Higgins um, and also the way that she's really, you know, dealt with this situation in general. Um, there are concerns, I guess, that they will not be able to put questions to Minister Reynolds at Senate Estimates, which is one of those key forums that you do get to draw out more information about certain issues from other senators. I'm wondering um, what your thoughts are in relation to this and I guess what it's saying about the overall culture and issues that we're dealing with here um, in federal parliament? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, there are obviously, it, it seems like there are potentially legal proceedings going on around um, Linda Reynolds's comments um, about Brittany Higgins, which the minister hasn't denied. Um, and like that may lead to some sort of formal apology. I mean, I don't think it should have taken, uh, you know, a, a defamation letter um, from Brittany Higgins to the minister to, you know, bring forth a formal apology. I think it's pretty horrific that that was the language that was used um, to describe, you know, a young woman who had made a very, very serious claim and had been brave enough to kind of do that publicly in a in a public forum on TV, put her face to her claims like that. 
would have been a terrifying experience. Um, and I think that for that to be the, the minister's response to, you know, quibbling with specifics about um, Brittany's sort of recollection of, of how things were handled by the office. Um, I, I mean, I, yeah, it's, it's very tricky because um, this is clearly a cultural issue within parliament, but it's not just limited to parliament, of course. And I think Dania Mani, who was on um, Q&A uh, this week, put it really well in saying that, like, you know, women in these spaces in leadership positions also need to look at how they've potentially internalised the misogyny of the of the culture of the workplace, right? And so I think that, that you know, there are women in leadership positions that need to... Um, think about how they're, the language they're using and how they're reflecting the, the kind of misogyny of, of parliament. Um, but ultimately, like, it comes back to the prime minister and the tone that he set. So what Linda Reynolds said was terrific, but I think it's also, it exists in an environment that's created by the prime minister. And so for this to wholly become a, um, like a disciplinary, um, action against the defence minister, I, I mean, I think that's important and valid and, um, like, those comments are completely, um, you know, unacceptable, but they exist, they don't exist in a vacuum, right? And I think that in a, in a place like Canberra that's so hierarchical, it's important that, you know, that the Prime Minister actually look at himself and, and the environment that he's creating in that, in that in that building and in that government that, that makes ministers feel like they can talk about like that about staffers um, who raise very serious allegations and who are, you know, brave enough to want to actually fix the culture there that they put their name and their face out with those um, allegations in the public because they haven't been given a fair hearing um, internally. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, I just want to ask finally about aged care, and we are going to go into this in much greater depth in subsequent shows, so I hope no one thinks I'm going to only give it five minutes or so um, because I do want to just focus on aged care by itself. But I also think it's important to actually recognise it given that it has been released, the final report into the Aged Care Royal Commission, and I know that uh, Rick Morton has been doing great reporting on aged care at the Saturday paper for a very long time. And it is certainly something we've all been waiting to see. We did see the interim report be released uh, last year, but now we finally have the recommendations. There is um, some divergence between the commissioners about uh, some of their recommendations, particularly around funding. Um, First of all, what was their assessment of the aged care system in terms of whether it's been delivering, whether the regulator has been doing its job, whether the government has actually been um, doing its job around oversight uh, from the Department of Health. What are those kind of top-line judgments of the aged care system as it is now? Mm. Well, I was going to say, I think if you're going to do an aged care special, you should definitely um, get Rick on to talk about it because he is um, he is the most knowledgeable reporter I've ever worked with um, on this topic uh, and wrote a long piece for the Saturday paper last weekend um, about the findings of the Royal Commission. So if anyone wants to go um, have a read of that in great depth, um, there's sort of 3,000 words on the findings. Um, but the top line... Um, the top line sort of response of the of the commissioners was pretty scathing. I mean, this is a you know, and and this wouldn't be a surprise to anyone who'd read the the interim report. But I think 
the it's an understaffed and underfunded um, system that doesn't deliver for aged care residents and there's a huge amount of abuse and neglect um, and really concerning sort of health and safety and cleanliness issues that are sort of brought to the fore by um, the commissioners Lenell Briggs and Tony, I don't know if it's Pagone or Pagoni, um, but Tony Pagoni potentially is his name. Um, for you know, for years they've investigated this, um, investigated the aged care system, and found it wanting. And I guess key to that is the fact that you know the cost of providing care over the last few decades has you know ballooned. It's 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 increased, I think from the mid 1990s, it increased by like 116% or something like that. And the, the Commonwealth, um, subsidies only increased by 70%. So there's this huge gap between what the Commonwealth is funding and what is the actual cost of delivering aged care to, I mean, a, a, a sector of people, like I, I think a key issue is that the, people who are in aged care now are older and sicker and, you know, tend to be over 80 um, and in need of complex care. And this is still a system that's designed for younger people who are perhaps just retiring and, and want to move into assisted living or something like that. Um, and it's not really dealing with the complex care that's needed because people are living longer um, and they're able to do that because of, you know, um, medical intervention and support. Um, but this is a situation where that's incredibly expensive and the government is just not funding it to the level that I think the community would expect. Well, one of the issues around complex care is that uh, currently there is no minimum staffing um, requirements in terms of registered nurses being on site. So in their recommendations, um, the commissioners have said that registered nurses should be on duty 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and provide 40 minutes of direct care per resident per day. Um, that is also in addition to care staff who aren't registered nurses, personal care workers, um, that should be better paid and better trained, um, according to them, and that also they should be able to provide a minimum um, number of care, hours of care a day as well to these residents so that we're not seeing um, residents with such higher needs um, being, I guess, neglected and not being given the adequate time they require um, by highly trained professionals, including medical professionals. Mm. Yeah, I thought that the statistic that really jumped out to me from Rick's piece on the weekend was that since 2003, the proportion of registered nurses in um, aged care fell from like 21% to 15%. Um, Meanwhile, the proportion of, you know, low-paid personal care workers who are often casuals, who um, don't have the sort of training that, you know, nurses or registered nurses would have, jumped from, you know, 58% to 70%. So they now make up the vast majority of, of workers within aged care. And I think that there's just not a not a um, acknowledgement by the government yet. I mean, we'll have to see what their response to um, this report is. And they've put, um, you know, more than $400 million into the system immediately as sort of an injection and have said that um, at the budget that will be their, their response to the um, Aged Care Royal Commission. But I think that for years there has been um, 
the government has sort of been pretending that if you get more workers in there, even if they're, you know, underpaid, undertrained, just bodies on the ground will be enough. And clearly what the Aged Care Royal Commission is saying is it doesn't matter if you have, you know, 50 underpaid, undertrained staff. What you need is one really highly trained registered nurse who can mm. give this high level of care. And the two aren't, you know, interchangeable. You can't just have a bulk of, of low-paid, undertrained workers that cancels out the need for a highly trained registered nurse who can give complex care. They're just not, they're just not the same thing. Um, and no matter how much you want them to be, um, clearly this assessment of the sector is, is saying we need more highly trained, highly paid and, you know, respected staff in these institutions. I think this is part of the issue that, that the work that is done by registered nurses and enrolled nurses in aged care homes isn't respected the way that it should. It's really complex medicine. You need to be able to understand a whole range of very, very complicated healthcare needs. And I think that that's, that's not being adequately kind of respected by government policy at the moment. Mm. And obviously adequately paid workers as well um, in terms of, you know, a lot of the care sector workers are women. It's a highly gendered workforce and it's still one of the lowest paid workforces as well in terms of aged care, uh, early learning, teaching, um, nursing in hospitals and the broader medical system. So this mm -hmm. is something that does have that gendered element as well. Of course. I don't, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's not, um, a revelation to say that the two topics that we've talked about today both come back to the the issue of you know women not being respected in mm. workplaces or when they speak in public and um, you know these aren't on completely separate issues there is there is a theme that runs through them. There certainly is. Um, Madison, it's just been fantastic to chat with you and I know we could continue talking because there's so much going on, um, but I'm really grateful to you for your time and also I do hope that I can um, catch up with Rick about aged care. That would be great. So feel free to put in a good word and uh, <laughs> we can catch up later on. But thank you for taking the time to catch up with us today and um, I do hope that you have a, a great week ahead and that people can check out the Saturday paper on a Saturday. It's printed and it's also online. Thank you so much for having me. I've got a paper to go put out, so I've got to go. But um, no worries. thank you. It's been great to chat. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto the program award-winning journalist Elizabeth Becker. She uh, began her career as a war correspondent for the Washington Post in Cambodia. She was also a correspondent covering foreign policy in Washington, D.C. for the New York Times, and she is the author of the definitive book on the Khmer Rouge, When the War Was Over, and her latest book has just been released by Black Ink here in Australia. It's called You Don't Belong Here. How Three Women Rewrote the Story of War. Elizabeth is currently based over in Washington, D.C., and she joins me from there right now. And thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining us and welcome. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me to be on your program. Well, I've got to say I was really intrigued by this book when I first picked it up. 
not just because it touches on issues that I find personally interesting, including women, but also war and particularly 20th century war. And I was really fascinated to learn about these three great women that you write about in this book, Catherine Leroy, Frankie Fitzgerald, and Kate Webb, one of whom Kate Webb is very exciting in the sense that uh, she was an Australian reporter, although her family were originally from New Zealand, and went over to cover the war in Vietnam, as did the other two journalists I just referenced. And what made this more interesting for me was also your professional background and experiences as a war correspondent in Cambodia, which no doubt would have been a really fascinating experience. So first of all, I was interested in the fact that given your past experience as a war correspondent in Cambodia for the Washington Post, clearly things may have been slightly better for women in war zones at that time. But even then, no doubt it was quite a significant thing for women to be reporting in war zones like Cambodia that really were mass killings and uh, highly dangerous environments to be in. And obviously, in some cases, very male dominated in terms of the leadership of war. So I wanted to get your sense, first of all, of your experiences as a war correspondent in Cambodia and how that has shaped your interest in these other women that you've sought to research? Well, um, I came to the war in 1973, and Cambodia was the Cambodia campaign of the Vietnam War. So it, it it's part of the Vietnam War. So the American War, which Australia took part in as an American ally, started in 1965 and ended in 1975. So I came in in the last two years. And I very much was following in the footsteps of these three women. I knew of them. And for instance, through a mutual friend, Kate Webb came to meet me at the airport in Hong Kong on my way to Cambodia, just to make sure I got on the right airplane. I was so, so green. And later, she came down from Hong Kong to do reporting for the last years of the war and, and helped me figure things out. Some, For instance, how to measure a bomb crater with my feet. And when I arrived in Cambodia, one of the books in my backpack was Francis Fitzgerald's Fire in the Lake, uh, Vietnamese and the Americans in, the, in Vietnam, which is a classic of the war. So I very much profited from them. And I understood that even the, the opening, and yes, it was still very much um, a man's press corps. And of course, all soldiers were male. But they opened up a road for me, and that's why I wrote this book. I thought that who they were and, and all the contributions they made and all the pioneering work they had done had been forgotten. And I, you know, I first was puzzled, and then I became infuriated because these women should be as well-known as Martha Gellhorn and others. So that's why I wrote a book, and yes, it came directly from my experience in Cambodia. In terms of your experiences, obviously being a foreign journalist, someone coming into a new land, I was really interested in the fact that you already had a really strong passion, academic passion in the area of Asian studies, particularly I think it was Southeast Asia, and the fact that the door was closed on your academic career and it then opened up this new avenue and through a great friend of yours who also sounds really fascinating, Silvana Foa. Yes, my friend Silvana Foa, who I met when we were both um, students in India, 
had gone on to Cambodia and had been trying to convince me to come and visit her. And I had no interest until um, my thesis was rejected, I think because I refused to sleep with my professor. He denied that. But anyway, I thought, heck, I was so naive. I thought, well, I've studied the region. Maybe I can make it. And so I went. And within a few months, she was thrown out of the country for writing a very good investigation of the illegal action of the American government in the the uh, big air campaign, bombing campaign. And I was on my own. So, yeah, I, I, I very much appreciated the help that both Silvana gave me and Kate. There were so few women reporting that it was a, it was a wonderful lifeline, no question. Well, it was also interesting that you were going over there at age 25. Uh, you say you had no idea what you had gotten yourself into. And it sounds very similar to the women that we'll get onto in just a moment in terms of the fact that they really threw themselves into a war zone with no you know, cleared career path laid out for them, no job necessarily waiting for them in terms of financial security. And yet they managed to pick up work to demonstrate their worth, to show their commitment to war reporting. And so I wondered in terms of your experience when you got to Cambodia, how did you manage to build that career, to build those connections and to manage the the demands of war life? Everybody was the same for women because women were not allowed to even cover sports in those days, much less the war. So yes, that was the same as them. All the women in those 10 years war, with very few exception, had to pay their own way, had to find a job, had to figure things out because women were not accepted as serious reporters. And that's the case in Australia and the United States and in Europe. So yeah, we were all the same. And you did what, um, what you had to do. You were on the ground, you knocked on a lot of doors, And because um, there was so much interest in the war, eventually you got work and hopefully you were able to make enough money to keep going until another opportunity and another opportunity. And so finally I became the contract stringer for Newsweek and for the Washington Post. But um, yes, it was the same for all of us from 1965 to 1975. I, I think I can count on one hand the number of women in those long 10 years who actually were sent over by a news organization. The rest of us had to do it on our own. And for those who are listening and aren't familiar with the role and the job of a stringer, could you just share briefly with us what that means? You have the exclusive right to be the reporter for that organization uh, when their own staff correspondent is not visiting. So you're the local resident reporter and you get a very small um, monthly stipend, and then you're essentially paid by the piece. So there is not a salary. There's no health insurance or anything like that. But if you have enough strings, you can make enough money. And if you write enough, you can make even more money. And I just wanted to read out a little quote from the introduction. You said, you had broken several important stories. I witnessed a US Army officer illegally advising the Cambodian Army under attack, and I published an investigation of the Khmer Rouge identifying their leader for the first time as a man named Saloth Sar, later known as Pol Pot, and describing his revolution as brutal and ruthless as well as antagonistic towards their Vietnamese allies. 
So in terms of that level of risk and firsthand experience and the types of stories that you were breaking, did you ever find yourself getting into situations that put your own life in danger? Yes. And you could do it just walking out of the street on some days when there there are mortar attacks nearby. So yeah, I mean, and that's part of it. There's no question. Yes. Let's move into Vietnam and talk about some of the fascinating women who you detail in this book. And obviously there is a great deal of detail and it reads quite like a narrative. And I enjoyed getting to know these women and their different personalities and their different backgrounds. The first woman that you talk about in this book is someone called Catherine Leroy, who is a French photojournalist and she has just a fascinating story and background and she seems to have always had a very strong rebellious streak that held her in very good stead in terms of when she arrived in Vietnam and started to butt up against some of the masculine behavior not just of soldiers but also most particularly against those who were in the press corps who perhaps were not as welcoming towards women in the battle field, given that they had not been allowed to cover war zones previously in in wars such as World War II? Uh, Catherine Leroy um, was, like all of us, she was in her mid-20s. She wanted to to do something important. Uh, So she arrived with a camera and literally no real experience. Yes, she was very much rebellious, rebelling against uh, petite bourgeois Catholic upbringing in the suburbs of Paris. And um, she was considered at first just a, a strange type who couldn't last. But when she proved to be successful, as you said, her colleagues were, I think, they were both suspicious and competitive. And um, they tried to do her in. She was too clever, though. And she became a photographer renowned for her fearless, fearless behavior on the battlefield. She believed that the best photographs were the ones where you could see someone's eyes, which covering a war is very dangerous, but she got it done and she sold her photographs quickly and they were on the covers of magazines around the world to the point that she was the first woman to ever win the George Polk Award in photography and later um, the Robert Capa Gold Medal Award. And in terms of her physicality, it's interesting that you remark upon the fact that she was only about five feet tall, um, so clearly not an imposing physical person. However, she did have a really interesting physicality and and that also tended to work in her favour in some regards in terms of her photojournalism. Well, what she did was she's so small, she no one noticed her. So yeah, she could she could push her way onto a helicopter to make sure she got to where she wanted to be. But then she sort of disappeared and she would crawl in the mud to get her photograph and no one would notice her. She was so small. And and people would say after they saw the saw the photographs, I didn't see her. So she was small, she was quick, and she she could be invisible almost. And she was also really interesting in the sense of her French culture and her French background and was seen to be a person of interest in that regard, able to share some little parts of France with the American soldiers, for example. But because she didn't have a partner like Fitzgerald did, she was targeted in terms of gossip around her sex life and the way that she conducted herself. And there was a lot of unfair criticism around her behaviour, wasn't 
there? Well, first of all, as a French woman, she grew up knowing about Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, what the French called Indochina, their colonies. So she had a deeper appreciation for what the war meant than a lot of Americans, because you know her father wanted to, the French to stay, and he cried when the French lost in Dien Bien Phu. So that was very important. In terms of the gossip, there were so few women, and they were treated with such you know disdain in terms of their profession. The men mostly talked about their personal lives and who was sleeping with whom. And because for the most of the years that she was in Vietnam, she was the only woman photographer on the battlefield. So there was sort of vicious gossip, but yeah, it was not, it was not good. It, and it bothered her. And it does seem that the challenges that she had in terms of her success, there were a couple of times when her press badge or accreditation was threatened and taken away briefly. And also there was also another attempt to prevent women from reporting at all on the ground at one point in Vietnam. And that didn't just affect Leroy, but what were these instances and how did Leroy manage to get past them? Well, as I said, um, there was a lot of competition and, um, and just disdain for having a woman as they said, act like a man. She didn't belong there. So her colleagues, many anonymous, a few by name, uh, worked with some of the U.S. military pressmen to challenge whether or not she was a discredit to the profession. And she briefly lost her credentials until she fought back and proved that, you know, not only was that not the case, but that's, that wasn't grounds for her to lose it. But that really hurt her. And after that, she was very careful about who she would befriend, and who she would essentially work with. So she found some American and, and European photographers who she trusted, and she only worked with them. She was part of a handful, and secondly, a handful of women who convinced the Pentagon, the civilian side of the U.S. military, to prevent the military from imposing that World War II ban, which was still official. Uh, it was, should have been um, imposed, but because of the nature of the Vietnam War, it wasn't. It was it was not um, enforced. And General William Westmoreland, who headed the U.S. military, threatened to, to reimpose it, and the women convinced them not to. And that was important because that essentially was the end of that ban. And every woman since has been able to cover um, the U.S. military on the battlefield because of a handful of those women. And you do say in the book that this was one of the rare times that these women could and would gather together in one group to really push back and to organise together. At the time, it was really seen to be a negative thing to be associated with women's liberation, as you talk about with Kate Webb. But I was interested in the observations you made about the fact that these women had very solitary or lonely experiences. And although they did find some people and individuals that they could speak with and, you know, I guess friendly minds or friendly intellectuals that they could explore their ideas with, but this experience of working in a war seemed to be very solitary, very individual. Well, war can be lonely, first of all, male or female, but when you don't have female friends, it makes it lonelier. And so the, all the women, and I, I interviewed a lot who I didn't even quote, they all said it could be very lonely at times because you're going through an incredibly difficult emotional um, situation where countries are at war. And with the lack of female friendship, that is markedly lonely. 
And so in terms of Catherine Leroy and her experience, maybe we can close out her story. She seems to have had such a fascinating career. And I did look at some of her photos to get a sense of her photographic style. And one of the photos that you do mention in the book is that image where she jumped out of the plane with the American military and parachuted down into a jungle in Vietnam. And she took this photo midair of the other parachutists also going down with their parachute open. And it is really a striking and very beautiful image. And I just was really interested in that experience and the ways that she provided such a really interesting and unique perspective, especially given that she had other skills, such as being able to, you know, jump out of a plane and, and parachute safely down. These are things that not every war journalist or photographic journalist would have. That's why I opened the book with that, because part of her rebellious youth was that she, um, on a dare, learned to jump in France. So she, she arrived in Vietnam already um, with, a, with a master's certificate. And when all the journalists heard about the first airborne assault in Vietnam, they wanted to apply. But Catherine was the only one accepted because she's the only one qualified. So there's no other journalist, photographer or writer who was allowed to jump. And she's so small, and the parachute was so big, it's amazing. She jumped while the other soldiers were jumping into a combat zone. She took, she had three cameras around her neck. She took the photographs. She landed, and then she followed them into that combat zone. So it's, it's extraordinary. And it turned out to be the last air assault. Indeed. And in terms of the ending of Catherine Leroy's career, how did she conclude her career? How long did she tough it out in that intense environment? She left Vietnam the end of 1967, beginning of 1968. She did some photography in the Middle Eastern wars and then came back to Vietnam for the very end of the war in 1975. And then from there, she went back to the Middle East, took more war photographs. She did some fashion photography in Japan. And in her 50s, she she had lost her footing in the field, and she died very young in her early 60s of cancer. That's a really sad story to hear. And I know that you said Catherine had asthma as well, which was something she had to contend with during her childhood. But it seems like lots of things just wouldn't stop her from actually achieving her passions. Right, right. You're right. Very much so. And this will be my second half of the interview that I conducted yesterday with Elizabeth Becker, former war correspondent for the Washington Post, and she's written a book, You Don't Belong Here. So we're about to get into the final two great women in war reporting. So do stick around. That also includes Kate Webb, who is an Australian. I mean, that was kind of similar to the other two women that you really do go into in greater depth. Frances Fitzgerald, who is an American born of great wealth and privilege. She has a really fascinating family with various interesting jobs, including her father, of course. And she seemed to also be pretty determined to go and make her way to Vietnam to cover this and to be a writer in this instance. Could you share with us a little bit of the background of Frances and how her experience perhaps differed slightly to the other women, given her background and particularly her connections within the American political sphere? Well, um, she was extremely wealthy. 
all three of them paid their own way, but Fitzgerald was the only one who had a very sizable bank account that so it was not a it wasn't a problem for her. And when she got there, she'd already through connections had already made sure that should her um, reporting work out, she had magazines that would want to take her articles. But when she landed, everybody thought, oh, she's so connected. Her father is number three in the CIA. Her mother is the mistress of Adlai Stevenson and a top democratic socialite and activist. And so they presumed that Fitzgerald would just take the easy route, mine all her connections in the embassy and write uh, stories that way. And she absolutely rejected that completely. And she used her privilege in what I thought was a brilliant way. She turned her back on the idea of covering the war largely from the battlefield and whether or not the American policymakers knew what they were doing. And instead, she wanted to look at Vietnam as a country. So she was so privileged. She had never seen anything like the privations of Vietnam, what the war was doing to the people. So she would interview um, people in the, the really horrible civilian hospitals. She went to the slums. She went to the villages that were being raised because of war policy. So she wrote um, stories that no one else wrote. She wrote about what the war was doing to the Vietnamese people, the landscape, the culture, and where it fit into the Vietnamese history. So uh, she sort of turned that privilege on its head. Yeah, it sounded like she didn't feel that she was tied to a certain way of reporting it, given her background, that she didn't feel like she owed anything to her father or to the American country, in a sense, in terms of the angle that the American military wanted people to think about the war and, and whether it was being fought on a, a kind of fair footing. At that stage, it was more that you look at the root of whatever the policy is. And she didn't just take it for granted that the United States was on the right side. She looked to see, and at, at that stage, the United States had never lost a war. Vietnam would be the first war that the United States lost. So she said, okay, what is the root of this? Do they know why they're fighting here? And if they know why they're fighting, are they fighting in a way that will lead to victory? And she told the bad news that she didn't see how they could win. And so it's not as if she's not pro-American or anything. I think it's that she was a very serious journalist. Absolutely. And one of the interesting anecdotes that I remember finding you know, particularly poignant was the fact that she listened really intently in these discussions she was having with other members of the press corps and also other Americans over in Vietnam. You say that she displayed her new savvy in the most pedestrian setting, the daily military briefings christened the five o'clock follies by the sceptical press corps. And then you go on to say, after attending several briefings, Fitzgerald noticed that the official kill ratio of friendlies to enemies never ended in five or zero. She investigated further and found this was always the case. It was a statistical impossibility. She pointed out this flaw to the briefer in front of the press corps in the process confirming what reporters knew from the field, that military and civilians made up body counts for their superiors. Her observation infuriated MACV officials. I mean, it sounds like that is serious journalism at its best. Right. And it also showed her very, very, very smart woman. It's, it's good journalism, but it's also a very, very intelligent woman. 
In terms of her personal experience over there, you did bring in a couple of friends and one love interest who she met over there who she seemed to develop close relationships with, one intellectually and one romantically, and that they also shaped her experience of Vietnam. Right. Her lover was uh, Ward Just, the Washington Post correspondent, a charming, smart, great writer, great reporter. And um, he later became one of our best novelists. Their relationship fell apart after Vietnam when they were both coming home and she was really not interested in becoming a wife at that stage in her life. She wanted to continue her research and write the book that became Fire in the Lake. And so he married another woman very quickly. The other man was Daniel Ellsberg, who was um, a PhD, uh, another intellectual who was working for this Department of Defense. He was the only one who took Fitzgerald seriously, and he supported the war, obviously, but he was willing to spend hours talking to her about it, and he became famous for being the man who leaked the Pentagon Papers. Oh, I thought the name looked familiar. I was like, where do I know him? (laughs) Well, I'm not surprised anymore that they managed to have really fascinating five-hour-long conversations then. Yep, yep, yep. And Kate Kate was different from them because she's Australian. Mm. And she came because she thought she could cover uh, the Australian army. And unlike the Americans, the Australians held on to their World War II ban and never let a woman cover them in Vietnam ever. So Kate had no choice but to try to cover the Americans. And she turned out to be brilliant in a completely different way than Frances. Uh, Kate had the hardest time getting a job, I think maybe because she was Australian and she had to work for American organizations. There was no Australian organization who had a local hire. And she banged on enough doors until the UPI hired her. And then she became a really great combat reporter, which is unusual because she graduated from college with a philosophy degree and she was also a practicing artist. So that's the last thing you would expect. Also very smart, very, very smart. But she became a great combat correspondent, brave as Catherine Loire, but um, as immersive, I mean, as, as smart as, as Frankie in, in that sort of writer sense, and all three of them very immersive in the local culture. So Kate became an expert on the South Vietnamese army, on, on a lot of the South Vietnamese government. And she also was had a different approach to her male colleagues, whereas Frankie just tried to ignore them and Katrine got into disputes with them. Kate became one of them. She became one of the guys. She cut her hair very short. She was always wearing her camouflages. And when they made fun of women's lib, she made the same jokes. She didn't want to be considered just a woman correspondent, that that she was a correspondent. If she was worried that if they called her a woman, that meant she was lesser. And that worked for a while, but um, I saw in her private notes to herself and letters and not letters per se, but her um, late night scribblings that it it came at quite a high price. And um, she had to swallow a lot of indignities and and, um, harassments and just pretend she was one of the guys. But she had, I think, easily the most prominent female byline through the war. I can't think of another woman who had more bylines covering war, combat in Vietnam and Cambodia. She rose to become the bureau chief for all of UPI in Cambodia, United Press International. 
And uh, again, she didn't want it to be that she was a big first because she did that because she did not want to be singled out as a woman. In fact, once a Women's Wear Daily, which is a um, fashion paper in the United States, did a story about the news hens, as the women were called, who were working with the news hawks, the men. And they went. They asked Kate, "How did you fit in?" And she didn't. She sort of ignored the question and just talked about whether or not the South Vietnamese had the right automatic rifles. That's how she was. Good on her for deflecting that, because I know a lot of women don't want to just be seen through only that lens and being seen as a woman war reporter. They want to be seen as a war reporter, which was very difficult to get that kind of reception at the time and still to some extent can be depending on the situation today. I did want to read out a section about Kate Webb and her really interesting experience that you've mentioned just briefly there. Quote, Webb developed a loner's mystique within the press corps. She got along with everyone but remained aloof. She was friendly with other women. She saw Loire in the field occasionally, but she had no close female friend other than her Vietnamese landlady. She liked drinking after hours with colleagues, all men, but then would disappear. In an unpublished novelistic memoir, she wrote about avoiding unwanted sexual advances from the men. One character warns her, beware, kid, he leches after you like the rest of us. That certainly is something which is obviously a universal experience for women, these unwanted sexual advances, particularly in male-dominated fields or contexts, and obviously a war zone, if you're a war zone correspondent, would absolutely be one of those contexts. How did Kate Webb deal with these kind of situations? Like you even talk about kind of comments that other men had made about you and your legs, for example, and this seems like it does tend to be a a common experience, this kind of unwanted sexual attention and remarks and women needing to in some way protect themselves from potential unwanted advances. She would get out of harm's way. You leave when they're still drinking and you go back to your room and you lock the door. Or um, you make sure that when you're out in the field, you're with someone you can trust. It just becomes automatic. And um, you, you avoid... All those things, like if you went to a dinner and you saw all of a sudden um, men bringing prostitutes in and getting loud and crazy, you left. So it was, it's a lot of avoidance. And still, that didn't mean you, you could get rid of them always, but you could certainly push them away. But yeah, it, was, it, it would never happen today as badly as it was then. I mean, Kate really had to swallow a lot. But um, she told me, never. she said, um, don't complain in public, just keep a low profile and it'll go away. And when you met Kate, what kind of sense did you get from her? And potentially that advice might have been something that you took on. I'm not sure. But what did you take away from that meeting? I met her in Hong Kong and she took care of me in Hong Kong. And then she came back a couple of times to um, Cambodia. And so, yeah, I saw her. And um, she's the kindest person in the whole world. She was so smart. She worked so hard. She's like a big sister. Everybody liked Kate. Everybody liked Kate. She's very funny. She had the softest voice, so you always had to lean close to hear her. Yeah, she knew how to navigate. I took her advice, and I was glad I did. I mean, there was problems with it down the road, but no, she was just a great colleague. Everybody wanted to be around Kate. She was a legend at a very young age. I was very lucky to have known her. Having read about her, I'm really impressed by her and wish that I 
had got to meet her as well. She sounds amazing and we should be very proud as Australians to have someone of that passion and intellect and grit to have been you know, playing such a key role in the Vietnam War reporting in the conflict zones. And you talk about the fact that her news stories from the field were very notable and quite different from the traditional wire service reports because she often used strong personal narratives, which some journalists shy away from, but she didn't. And they do seem to be very effective in getting across um, the gravity of certain situations, but also sometimes how seemingly benign situations can turn into conflict almost instantly. And so she does say and write, I had been sitting on the steps of the command post with Colonel Fook and Colonel True, and we were laughing about always meeting on the street. We had been there about 15 minutes and Colonel Luan joined us wearing a new pair of boots. You then go on to say, Kate Webb left to check on nearby fighting when two minutes later the rocket hit, quote, there was an explosion. Smoke was billowing from the building. I saw the bodies but could not tell the difference between the dead and wounded because they were caked with white plaster dust and blood. Rangers and police loaded them onto jeeps, shielding them with their own bodies. And then you say she admitted to say that she rushed back and aided the wounded before writing her account. I mean, that is just a phenomenal piece of writing just there in terms of vividly describing a situation very effectively and using that narrative account. But to me, and I wonder what your take is on it, it doesn't seem to undermine the objectivity of a reporter. Oh, no, no. And um, I think nowadays this is accepted universally, but um, then it wasn't. It was more straight down the line, just the facts, ma'am. And all three of these women, um, I think in part because they're outsiders, they were able to create their own style. And Kate brought that humanity to war reporter. And I also quote one of her pieces on guys who were in helicopters. She did it naturally. She did it fluidly. There's no no excesses of anything. It was, this is what happened. She writes her narrative and she draws you into the story and you feel like you're there. And that's, it's actual, factual. It, she draws the picture and it's a true picture. And it seems like these approaches to writing, including uh, obviously Fitzgerald and Webbs, were noted and valued and commented on as providing a really unique perspective, both of them in different ways. Do you think that they were affecting the way that journalism was being conducted and reporting was being conducted? Then were they influencing other journalists as well? Cause and effect is hard, you know, obviously. And I, I, I quote some of the people who say, yes, it affected academia as well as journalism. But yeah, and how much of it was directly them, but there's no question that they were the pioneers of the style. And then after them, it was very much picked up. And it's now common. It's a matter of course that when you cover a war, you want to know about the whole country. You want to know all of the religions of Iraq, Iraq, for instance, and who was up, who was down. Is it Shiite? Is it Sunni? Who's being favored? You know, the whole questions that that they all asked now is normal where it wasn't in um, Vietnam. So yeah, no question. They broke through the glass ceilings. And just as importantly, as outsiders, they saw a greater humanity of, of the war and changed the style. So yes, that's why they're important on International Women's Day. 
Yes, which it is right now as we speak in (laughs) Australia. It's just about to be in America on your side of the world. Elizabeth, in terms of how the general public remembers these women or perhaps in some cases don't remember these women compared with their male colleagues, what has been their legacy, particularly in America, given the status or the significance of the Vietnam War and even obviously in Vietnam itself, are these women better known over there than perhaps they may be elsewhere or has there been a a kind of forgetting of these women to a significant extent? That's one of the reasons I, I wrote the book. They've been forgotten too much. And it's no better here than anywhere else. And uh, you guys, uh, Australians, were were wonderful in that they um, made a stamp with Kate's face on it um, a few years ago when they were honoring women in war. But no, I mean, that's why I wrote the book. Uh, their, their influence in terms of what they contributed is amazing. And um, as I said, they broke through the glass ceiling. But um, the reason I, I wrote this book was in order to uh, remind w- people of what's been forgotten. And it's not the first profession where the women's contribution gets buried. And every year, every month, there's a new story about the the scientists or the um, the engineers who had been forgotten. Well, you know, I wanted these three to be remembered by not just um, journalists, but people who were interested in the Vietnam War. Um, I wrote this book so that they could be part of the conversation. And then in, and in this interconnected world, I think when you throw that pebble, so to speak, out, it's, you know, the butterfly flapping the wing. I hope it, it leads to other things and other things and other things. And there's no statue to Martha Gellhorn of World War II, but everybody remembers her. Part of that is because it was a war that everybody was proud of winning. Uh, but I think you know, you're doing it just by having me on your program. So thank you. Thank you. I think we're, we're doing it together. I'm so glad to contribute. And I'm so grateful that I've made <laughs> it possible for Australians here to actually hear from you. Elizabeth, thank you so much for writing this book. And I really appreciate the commitment you've brought to this to bringing their memories to us. Well, thank you. And um, happy International Women's Day. <laughs> you too, Elizabeth. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And we're going to be speaking with Jacqueline Kent now. She's a biographer. And um, this book, Vida, A Woman for Our Time, is out through Viking, which is an imprint of Penguin Books. And I welcome Jacqueline now. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello, Amy. It's lovely to be here. I'm just so um, grateful to to get to talk with you about a topic and a person that I'm so impressed by. And uh, she has so much personality and passion and conviction as well. So it's not hard to start to empathise and uh, fall in love with the brilliance of Vida Goldstein. I'm so glad you feel like that because she's actually been in several books before now. I mean, she's, she because she was the first woman in the Western world to put a hand up to stand for a national parliament. She wasn't the only one to stand. 1903, this was, in Victoria. But, I mean, she's kind of been embalmed in a funny way, because she's one of these women who did something first 
And that's all people know about her. So it was an absolute mm. delight for me to kind of get into her a bit, read her speeches, read what she wrote, see how funny she was, see how warm and friendly and terrific she was. So, yes, I'm really glad you feel that way because, um, yeah, so do I. Yeah. <laughs> yes, well, I was really lucky to encounter some of the primary documents about her when I was writing a lecture, a Senate occasional lecture, a year and a half ago, and we were talking about women in federal politics and the first women who actually got elected to federal politics, which was only in 1943. So I was quite shocked about how late that was and then was interested in all those women who came before Enid Lyons and Dorothy Tangney. And of course, Vida definitely comes up, as you say, because of her real significance in history. But also there were so many other women, I guess, lesser known women as well, who mm did put their hand up in that first 1903 election, which you also do talk about in the book as well, and show, the, I guess, the context that Vida was working in when she put her hand up. And I wanted to start off this conversation with her formative years because I think it's similar to what we always see, which is you kind of hear about, like you've said, a kind of embalmed famous person and you just think, oh, well, they came out a fully formed human being when they mm. ran for parliament in 1903. But in fact, there was so many different major life events and developments in Vida's life that has been instrumental, clearly, in actually getting her to that point. So um, maybe we can start by talking about her mother and father, which seemed to be really important figures in her life for different reasons. Yes, that's terrific. It's, uh, well, you know, being a biographer, biographers are always terribly interested in where people started out from and, you know, childhood influences and tracing threads through people's lives. But in Vida's case, I think you're absolutely right. Her mother, Isabella, and her father, Jacob, were both rebellious people in their way. Isabella was a daughter of the Western District, and she and Jacob met in Portland. Jacob was nothing like as aristocratic, in, in quotes, as Isabella was. Jacob was an Irishman from, I was born, I think, in Belfast, and his name, he did have a Jewish background, which Goldstein would tell you, but he escaped from his family when he was about 19, got on a ship, came to Australia, ended up in Portland and met Isabella. And she was desperate to get away from her own family because though there was money and she had a very comfortable life, she really wanted to do more with her life. And also there were real family problems, which I go into a bit in the book, which made her desperate to get away from that milieu. So they got together and they both really had a strong Christian sense of doing good for those less fortunate, not in a pious kind of way at all. They were both very energetic, both good organisers, and they both felt the same way, that it was necessary to do what they could to help those who were less fortunate. And that's what they did when they went to Melbourne, when Vida was about eight. And uh, Isabella went and worked in Collingwood, which was a pretty horrible area then because it was oh, rats and raw sewage and factories and and lots of typhoid and hideousness. She and the Reverend Charles Strong, who was a very important figure in early Melbourne history, got together and started the first crèche 
in Collingwood to look after the kids of factory workers. And Vida, as a young woman, when she left school, she went to Presbyterian Ladies College. When she left school, she actually decided not to go to university. There are other issues there. Uh, she decided that she would help her mother in her work for the poor and in charity work. And that's how she started honing what obviously were innate organisation skills. That's how she started, working with her mum. It is really, really interesting to see that relationship with her mum and the fact that they were so such a powerful duo advocating mm. on so many different issues, but really with that focus of disadvantage and particularly women and working mothers. Those descriptions of Collingwood and the slums in Melbourne were pretty shocking and rather mm. visceral when you read them and you kind of feel for the women who were clearly just doing their absolute best to scrape by and and make it and feed their children. Yeah, Um, exactly. Yeah. There were two big things that they got involved in that Vida really started to, you know, feel her wings flying a bit. One was the Monster Petition, which was 1901, and it was a petition signed by 30,000 women in Victoria to get the state vote because Victoria was the last of all the former colonies to give women the right to vote in state elections. The federal one came in 1903, which we'll talk about in a sec, I guess. But really, that was the big thing. And she helped. She went around knocking on doors and saying to women, will you sign this petition? And that's how, that was really her first sort of solo effort Then she and her mother were on the committee that put together the Queen Victoria Hospital, which was the first hospital in Victoria and I think probably in Australia that was set up by women for women. And thanks to a woman named Annette Bear Crawford, who was one of the great movers and shakers of this campaign, they started what was called a shilling fund. So they'd go around again and ask women, please, can you contribute a shilling to the building of this hospital? And it was enormously successful because even women in rural Victoria who weren't going to use the hospital, which would be in Melbourne, put their money into it because every women really felt very uncomfortable about male doctors. Women doctors were only just starting to appear. They'd only recently got the right, women had only just recently got the right to graduate as doctors. And so they were sort of really wanting that to keep going, of course. And women in the provinces of Melbourne, in the in the outer reaches of Melbourne, just decided this was a really good thing and they were supporting the cause. So they got a lot of shillings and eventually the hospital was built. There was those two experiences, I think, and working with Annette Bear Crawford that really made Vida into the administrative organiser and incredibly competent organiser that she did become. Indeed. And that was a really fascinating part of that story was the formation of the Queen Victoria Hospital. And you write that it was opened in, was it 1897? I think so, yes. It was a bit later, I think. Oh, it was was two years later. It was meant to be 1897. That's right. For Queen Victoria's Jubilee, which was 1897, she'd been, hang on, 60 years on on the throne. They were going to open this. That's why it was called the Queen Victoria. But it was a bit later than that. 
And um, and it was interesting that they were crowdfunding almost. It was like this, as mm. you say, this like late 19th century version of crowdfunding to just ask for what people might be able to afford if it's our equivalent of a dollar 50 cents or two dollars. And uh, and it was interesting to hear about the fact that there were two hospitals that were seeking to be set up, both being pioneered by women. The other one yeah. um, was an infectious diseases hospital, which was being pioneered by a wealthy person called Janet, Lady Clark. Janet, Lady Clark, yes, that's right, a very well-known philanthropist. And on the conservative side of politics, it was quite funny. They were being set up at the same time, both sort of very good works, but the work being set up was entirely different because Janet Lady Clark, being um, a well-known philanthropist and a, a pretty good all-round person, I think, very conservative, though, she had really good contacts with the male establishments of Melbourne at the time, politics, business, medicine. And so she was able to use those to spearhead the formation of the Infectious Diseases Hospital, which I think without it. Was it Fairfield? I think it was. Um, yes. Yep. I think I think it last. I think it was finally. Um, oh, which premier? Said, oh, Jeff Kennett. I think Jeff <laughs> Kennett. Like, yeah, Jeff Kennett closed it down a few years ago. I think. Sounds but, like him. Um, mm, I think. I think it was actually. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, but the Queen Victoria Hospital is still there. I think. Yeah. I well, think. I. I it's not called the Queen Victoria no. um, anymore. I don't know if it's the one I'm thinking of. I will check I think, that out. Yeah, I think, I think it's... Okay, listeners, <laughs> this is your cue. Yeah. Yeah, tweet me, yeah on, right. tweet me on social media while we're talking and you can get a special shout-out for your quick Googling. I wanted to ask about the way that women were seen, their role at the time in the late 19th century in Australia, because you introduce us to a number of really prominent women who had different personalities, different priorities, but they were all really phenomenal women in terms of their presence, their intellect, the way that they spoke, from women that most people would be familiar with, like Catherine Helen Spence from South Australia, who um, is a really important figure in Australian politics as well, and Australian life mainly for her. Well, she was engaged in a lot of things, including the constitution and the formation of that for Australia, but also particularly interested in social issues and social justice. But there were other women who seemed to be really important friends to Vida, but also mentors to Vida. And you did mention just there one of those great women who we perhaps aren't as familiar with either and her significance. Yes. In fact, that was one of the nice discoveries of this. They all became prominent. These women who were obviously intelligent pretty well-educated, very vocal and very determined. There was a whole cohort of them all over Australia, in fact, but um, I dealt most specifically with the ones in Melbourne. And there were two or three I'd like to mention here. One was Henrietta Dugdale, who, with Annie Lowe, set up the first women's suffrage organisation in Victoria. And Henrietta was always portrayed as a battle axe, you know, sort of large, you've seen, we've all seen the cartoons, you know, sort of fussy bonnet, um, bustle, hugely overweight, probably glasses, you know, big mouths, all that. Henrietta was 
always portrayed like that because she was um, she she was an exponent of what was known as rational dress, which was extremely hideous. There were these dreadful bloomers that women wore, but they were practical because you could bicycle in them, and and women bicycling was. It sounds so extraordinary now, but women riding bicycles was revolutionary because women had always been sitting around waiting to be taken places by their men unless they rode themselves. But, you know, the bicycling was, was a badge of independence. Henrietta Dugdale was doing that. She was extremely scathing about men and how they were running things. And her um, colleague was Annie Lowe, who is really interesting. Annie Lowe... Nobody knows much about Annie Lowe, but she travelled all over Australia. She knew Indigenous people. She There was a Mr Lowe, but we, he didn't sort of figure much. But she is famous for one thing in particular, apart from starting the suffrage organisation with Henrietta, and that is her wonderful quip about when the shrieking sisterhood, as they were called, which is women who were assertive, they were known in the press as the Shrieking Sisterhood. And Annie Lowe, it was Annie Lowe who said, I would like to remind everybody that it is the male cockatoo who does the shrieking, which I've always <laughs> rather liked. <laughs> and it's the so other funny. one, yeah, 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 she's good. The other one I like I like to mention is Britannia Smythe, who is not really well known at all. She was extraordinary. She was a very bright woman from England. She came out to Victoria and she started, she became one of the first in the intake of women studying medicine in the late 80s. But she couldn't afford to keep going because she didn't have any money. So she withdrew and got married, started up a grocery shop and she spent her time preaching and advocating responsible and reliable contraception for women. And underneath the counter in her green grocer shop, she sold contraceptives, mostly diaphragms, because the thing about diaphragms, of course, is that um, no men would know that their women were using them, which was yeah. the point. Mm. So it, it was very much a woman's decision. And she advertised in the press and she she imported quite a lot of her contraceptive devices from, from France. And you read the, you read the ads and... You sort of think, oh, really? You know, <laughs> that works. <laughs> um, but she was, um, she was terrific. She's about six feet tall. She was easily caricaturable, I'm afraid. She, she was large, large bosomed and six feet tall and wore blue glasses. So, you know, Amazing. she was an absolute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there are a lot of others. There are a lot of others. They were the three, three of the more prominent ones, but there were a lot of women backing them up just quietly Mm. yeah it's so true some of those anecdotes were what I really loved about um, this book was hearing about those other women as well and getting to know Mm. their personalities and the kinds of challenges they had and obviously she was really really smart um, and could have done a medical degree but she's done really important things like giving lectures on love Mm. courtship and marriage writing booklets on women's health so these are just really important things that in the the late 19th century are actually quite radical things to be doing because these aren't public topics of discussion Certainly not. They weren't either. And, of course, the problem was that there were very few women that women could go to for discussions about these things because, you know, men 
you're going to a male doctor and if you're a young woman, a venturous young woman, you know, you were likely to be refused. Of course you'd be refused. So there was a moral element in it which was absolutely done away with by Britannia Smythe and other women because they focused on the practical. They they really did. And, um, and that was why they were so successful because women went to them because they knew that they would get a fair hearing without judgment. Yeah, it was great to hear about the really interesting setup of an outpatients clinic for women in Latrobe Street in Melbourne offering pregnancy advice and preventative medical services and you write that very soon after opening they had over 2,000 women patients which is really quite staggering and they were not just well-to-do patients it was across the spectrum of people in Melbourne women who Mm. no doubt found it very uncomfortable to talk to a male doctor but perhaps even the male doctors didn't really understand where women patients were coming from given that we really only even today in women's health don't often have a great understanding about women's health and the importance of women's experiences with their bodies so um yeah it was really really nice to hear yeah yeah Yeah. i just heard the other day that the site of that first clinic. It's near the Welsh church in um, in the Trobe Street. It's a little white church coming oh, near the library. Oh, yes, yes, yep. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and wow. uh, someone told me that the other day, so I'm just passing that on. I didn't <laughs> know that, but there you go. I'll look it up. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. Talking of old churches and buildings, I have got a tweet from Graham Kidd, one of our listeners, who says it's the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. So the building Uh is still there and that's, I believe, Lonsdale Street, but it is not a hospital anymore. And I was thinking of the Carlton Refuge, um, which was actually established in 1857 in Carlton on Kent Street. Yeah. Yeah, and that was for... That was um, established as a maternity ward and a foster home for infants and was focused on maternal and childcare and was kind of morphed into various iterations um, in the mid-20th century. So, um, Interesting, yeah. yeah. I, was just, I was just thinking then that Victoria really was at the forefront of, you know, improvements for women. I mean, social, all those things that we've just been talking about. And it is even more extraordinary in that case that they that the Legislative Assembly didn't see their way clear to giving women the state vote until 1908 when there are all these other terrific things going on. It's quite extraordinary. It really is. Isn't it? And, and I was mm. interested in the the fact that the bill in Victorian State Parliament did get passed at that lower house level every oh. time it was put forward, but it was the Legislative Council that kept on pushing it back. I know, yeah. It's not only you not know, it's some I really wanted to spend a bit more time on that, but you know, it was only it was part of Vida's story and not main focus necessarily. But the fact that the Legislative Council was so much the province of conservative, rich blokes, which it was. And uh, that sort of needs a bit of unpicking, actually, because you have a look at the difference between the Legislative Council and the Legislative Assembly, and with one sort of forward-looking progressive and the other really being desperately conservative and keen to keep the women out. I think Janet Lady Clark and quite a few of her colleagues were not keen 
on women having the vote. I think they thought that was a bit much. So that not all the women, of course, thought that women should have the vote because um, Vida knew that, that it wasn't just men who were against this. There were quite a lot of conservative women as well. But just the the extent and the concentrated determination not to give women in Victoria the vote has always struck me as being quite extraordinary. And it only happened in 1908, the last of the states to do this, while they'd been the first to even contemplate it, because of the Premier Sir Thomas Bent could no longer resist the pressure from... Well, from, wasn't just from the legislative, the legislative assembly. It was um, it was other parts of society. So he had to give in in the end, which he did. Finally, finally, yeah. yeah. And the monster petition that those women put together is actually at the Victorian Parliament, and I did get to see it. It's quite a phenomenal. Um, it's, it's so big, isn't it? So huge. long. <laughs> it really is a monster. Yeah, it really is. To think of, yeah, that people were carting around huge pieces of paper and taking it door by door to different women. And also, as we've already just been referencing there, the fact that I think people nowadays might assume that all women, you know, wanted the vote, all women Mm, wanted equal rights, but this is not the case. Just like for men, there were men who wanted women to get the vote. There were also men who didn't. That's right. And you do, at the end of Chapter 6, mention the fact that Vida's father, Jacob, sat with her in the parliament watching one of these suffrage bills be put forward. But, in fact, he wasn't there to support Vida. He was actually there to oppose that bill. So I also found that a really interesting point that you've uncovered. Actually, that was one of the most maddening things about the research because that came from, I think it was the age or the Argus, I think it was the Argus, just mentioned that they were sitting together and it was the lion lying down with the lamb, which mm. that all they said, they didn't say which was which. I mean, you could probably guess, but, um, but that is the only real intimation I could find, you know, in print, that Jacob really didn't want this to happen. You could work it out from that why and where, because even though his kids, he wanted all his kids, the five of them, four girls and a boy, he wanted them all educated. But it was that, I am convinced, it's that thing about, well, you know, for the future generations, women should be well educated, but they were not to have ambitions of their own. And I think that's probably what split the marriage, which it did in the end. Mm. But, um, so you can, it's kind of working backwards from that fact, but Jacob was a fairly peppery character and the marriage, as I said, the marriage, his marriage to Isabella didn't work out very well to the point they didn't divorce, but he went and lived elsewhere in the same building, mind you, but they they still lived um, separately. But it was just so interesting to see that there was a conflict there and that's what you have to do when when you're doing this sort of work. You think, God, I didn't know that. Where did that come from? Yeah. And you have to find that. Yeah. No, it's so interesting. It seems like it's something that's, you know, one of those lucky finds that you get something that is very revealing and maybe makes some of the other primary documents take on a new meaning and make more sense and tend to, to link things together, ideas in your mind. And it's really great that the way that you write this book feels like such a, a, 
a story where you can start to connect with all of these characters and feel a kind of sense of empathy for them and an understanding of what they were going through. And I wanted to pick up on a couple of things before we get to Vida's run for Parliament, which she did a number of times. But one of the really great things that she did was establish a couple of publications in Melbourne. One of them that you highlight early on in the book was the Australian Woman's Sphere. And um, you talk about a kind of statement that the principal from PLC, the school she went to, made in a newsletter and it was that women's sphere, it is said, is in the home, truly, but we cannot consent to have the radius from a vital centre arbitrarily limited. The sphere is a circle of chalk which the tide of necessity and the steps of these noble times is obliterating. And, mm. um, gosh, that's such a great statement, yeah. but also very, very radical. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to bring in the other um, publication for discussion, which was The Woman Voter as well, and that uh, yeah. um, is just such a great, fascinating read to download the PDFs, which you can do from the archives and read through it. It's just lovely. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with those too because really they are, they're easy to read. Um, and yeah. The clarity, yeah, they're very clearly written. Very little sort of journalistic fussiness that you often see in periodicals of that time. I mean, one thing you notice when you're going through newspapers for this sort of period is the fact that um, the Bible and Shakespeare were kind of common currency and people sort of used phrases from both to show how well educated they were. Vida didn't bother with any of that stuff. She just said what she had to say and uh, and so did the contributors to her newspapers. I suspect that she wrote most of both of them, really, although she did go away occasionally and come back and kept it in other people's hands. But I think she always was a strong contributor to it, and I think it's a real tribute to the clarity and force of her writing, don't you think? Oh, yeah. She's clearly very articulate, but also she knows how to speak to everyone, and Mm. she really... I mean, you do talk about the fact that her family at different points were more well-off than a number of other families and they weren't doing too badly in the sense that Mm. they could rent homes in fairly nice suburbs. And, you know, even Vida's sister, I believe, married a a man who eventually became wealthy, what you call in that time a millionaire, and he also provided some kind of support to Vida and her newspapers and publications. Yeah, that was uh, Henry Hyde Champion. That was another gloriously interesting find. I just found something in, of all things, the St. James Gazette. Thank you, Trove. <laughs> that yeah. sort of said that he'd become the uh, the legatee of his of a cousin who had been killed in one of the Afghan wars and bequeathed all his fortune to Henry. And I thought, hang on, that solves a huge problem because I had no idea how she funded all this stuff. And, it's, mm. you know, I think Henry must have given her the odd pound or two. In fact, I'm sure he did. Yeah. Yeah, He sounded like he had a lot of personality as well. He did. In fact, he's a very interesting character also. He was, uh, he was a bit of a gadfly. Um, You know, he always supported really good left-wing causes, set up um, a bookshop with his wife, Elsie, who was Vida's sister called The Book Lover and Book Lover's Library. And, 
actually championed quite a lot of new writing at the time and was, in fact, for a while, George Bernard Shaw's Australian agent. So he's, he's, worth, a, he's worth a good biography on his own, actually. Really, he's a very interesting bloke. Mm. Yeah, no, that's so true. I'm speaking with Jacqueline Kent, who is a biographer, and we're talking about Vida Goldstein, and we're talking about Jacqueline's new book, Vida, A Woman for Our Time. Now, Jacqueline, it's really wonderful to hear and read all about Vida as a political campaigner, because as we've already referenced early on, she was one of those women in 1903 who put her hand up to run for federal parliament in the Senate representing Victoria. And as we've said, there were other women who ran for the Senate and also one who ran for the lower house. And they were all, as you say, progressive independents. None of them were aligned to a particular political party. But Vida was so adamant about not being tied to a political party and was really quite clear that she would remain an independent. And she did go on to contest other elections. So it's interesting to see that she was unwavering in her commitment to being an independent. Could you share with us that first run and the kind of convictions that really made her who she was as a political candidate? She never varied very much. She, she ran five times between 1903 and 1917. And in the last two times, she actually ran as a pacifist candidate during World War I, which took a certain degree of fearlessness, I've always felt. I've always admired her for that because, um, you know, she had to put up with quite a bit. There was a lot of hostility in all all her runs. The first one, though, was, good heavens, fancy a woman standing for Parliament, you know, as if it was something really weird. And apparently constitutional lawyers went off to see if she was even eligible. So there you go. But basically her position never, as I said, didn't vary much when she was talking about the rights of women. What she was interested in the first time she went was equality and education. She always felt that the question of whether giving women the vote made any difference was completely irrelevant, which, of course, it is. She said the point about giving women the vote is not whether it would make a difference, but the point is it is a badge of equal citizenship. Women were equal citizens, therefore they deserved and should have the vote. And she didn't vary from that very much. And what she was after was equality in such things as divorce laws and the role of women and pay, of course, equal pay, and, you know, women having jobs where they were dealing with other women, for example, in prisons and so on. And so all those things, it was all to do with equality. She always also felt, and she was very strong on this, that women alone understood the issues that confronted women and children. Men didn't have a clue and that they needed to be educated about this and women in Parliament was exactly what was needed for that to happen. And she also didn't think that um, women should have any particular deference due to them. It was getting the same rights as men that she was keen on. The education side of it was she was very keen to put up her hand to see that women understood what their new right to vote actually meant and the influence they could have. And she travelled around Victoria for two months. It's quite extraordinary when you look at the... In summer, 
yeah. you know, wearing all those enormous clothes <laughs> yes. with one trunk. <laughs> she would travel around, and everywhere she went, she was uh, a phenomenon. She, everybody sort of flocked to hear her. And she showed she was pretty good on the hustings too. She did something that no woman had ever done. Apart from speaking in public, which women were not supposed to do because, you know, it was not something that women... Women didn't push themselves forward, right? That was the mm-hmm. idea. But she was very quick on her feet. And when she got hecklers, she knew exactly how to deal with them. At one meeting, she looked at a group of people and said, well, have you any other questions? And they didn't. And she said, well, good. Well, in that case, I'll ask you some questions. <laughs> and what do you think about this? What do you think about that? I need to ask you questions because I need to know what you think if I get into Parliament. I mean, mm. really smart way to do it. And, of course, she, could all, she was also pretty good at the put-down. There was one bloke who said, don't you wish you were a man? And her reply was, don't you wish you were? <laughs> <laughs> So she was was extraordinary. Yeah, I think she was absolutely wonderful. And that's the pattern that she carried on with with all her other attempts to get into Parliament. The first time she tried, she got about 51,500 votes, which was about half the number of votes that the most successful male candidate got in Victoria. They changed the system shortly afterwards. In 1924... Voting became compulsory. It was it was not compulsory, and it was um, first past the post in voting. I suspect that now. In fact, I do think, and I've had a bit of pushback about this, but I really do believe that had the current system of Senate preference and election been there at the time, I think she would have got in. Well, 51,500 votes is a lot when you're thinking about it. And you do say that voting wasn't compulsory at the time and also that just because she was a woman didn't mean that women would actually vote for her, which was one of the points that Catherine Helen Spence somewhat brutally made. She sounds like she was particularly a, a realist, but it is true that... Although Vida was saying, you know, loyalty to one's sex is important um, in this situation, it didn't necessarily end up that way. You couldn't expect that every single woman who had the vote was going to choose Vida in Victoria. No, that's absolutely true. And to do her justice, Vida never got bitter about that. She never, she sort of thought, oh, well, you know, that's the way it is. And she talks about one of the reasons she didn't get in in the first time, her first attempt was the prejudice of sex was one of the phrases that she used. She didn't say the male prejudice of sex or not enough women voted for me, etc. She She just left that one open. And I think that was pretty much how she felt, that she didn't really expect every man or every woman, as you say, to vote for her just because she was a woman. And in terms of the other runs that she had, she did run in the seat of Kuyong, which is, you know, nowadays known as a very blue ribbon liberal with a capital L seat. And even then, I believe Kuyong was quite a well-to-do suburb or electorate, wasn't it? Yes, it was. And the reason she chose Kuyong, which is pretty much where it is now, I think, the reason she chose it was that in her previous campaigns, she had the most votes from women in that electorate. Mm. Um, She was unfortunately standing against somebody who'd already been a parliamentarian, Sir Robert Best, and, you know, he actually did quite well and she didn't. So, and he'd been the member before. So she really 
you know, she didn't really have much chance with that. But I really think I'd like to sort of talk a little bit about this independent business because everybody said, oh, the reason she didn't get in was that she wasn't a member of a political party. Well, they weren't exactly knocking down the doors to get to her, you know. I mean, they, they, were, they were male establishments. They had both the Conservatives and Labor had already set up the way they were going to run pretty well forevermore, the way they run now mm. more or less. And, you know, she was knocking on the door to be let in and they weren't going to let her in. The Trades and Labor Council actually supported her a couple of times, I think. But the political parties didn't. And it was the same with the other women who stood. All the women, up until about 1943, all the women who tried to stand for national parliament stood as independents and none of them got in. And it is because, I think, of the party organisation. Yes. Well, I mean, even when we have heard, of course, that Susan Ryan passed away over the weekend, she was the first Labor, female Labor cabinet minister at the federal level, and that was in the 80s. So, you know, these are very male-dominated parties with a very particularly blokey culture that even some of the men didn't quite fit into. Um, no, that's right. Of course, mm. if you're thinking about Labor, it's probably even more so given the prominence of trade unions within Labor mm. at the time. So, yeah, that, it's a, it's a very right. important point that you make about the parties, no doubt, not really desperately well, trying to recruit women as parliamentarians because they'd like to get elected themselves. Well, that's right. And even, I quoted the book, I think, um, a woman who was the coordinator of Emily's List in Victoria said really that women have very little to do with the organisation of the Federal Labor Party. And of course, it's certainly true with the Conservatives, but they don't. The guys run the game, basically, still. They mm. do. That's <laughs> very mm. true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and one of the interesting points we should make, because we've said that the first women elected to federal parliament were elected in 1943 and Vida died in August 1949. So she did mm-hmm. actually see women finally make it, two women, which I guess is a nice thing to see at least, is that she saw it, it eventually happened, but obviously it wasn't for her. No, and in fact, she did write letters of congratulation to those first successful women. But, you know, there were lovely echoes of 70s feminism later on because she wrote to friends. She used to get really frustrated in the 20s and 30s because they weren't radical. They all women were not radical. They weren't doing what the right... Well, I mean, they were in the middle of a depression apart from other things. But really, you hear women who came to, well, Susan, Susan Ryan's generation, I guess, who came to prominence in the 70s saying exactly the same thing about young women now. I think it's what always happens, actually. Yeah. But it's no, not true, true now. I mean, I can't imagine even 10 years ago that, you know, Malala and Greta Thunberg would have gained any prominence at all, let alone having the courage to stand up and do what they've done. Institutionally, though, I don't think a lot's changed. Yeah, the way that politics is done, the game that's played and Mm. um, the parliament as well, it is very much the same Um, and it is a constant discussion for debate really about have things changed, how do you change a system that is just Mm. so set in its ways and some people have suggested that it's about having more role models but I would say it's not, you know, that's important to see that you know, you can actually do this, you can put your hand up, but it's so much more than that. And um, 
Yeah, I wanted to bring in something that comes up for women in politics a lot and for Julia Gillard, for so many different women who are leaders, and that's their appearance and the fact that people uh, will often, or journalists in particular, it seems, but also the general population, when a woman runs for parliament, it's so much harder to get that cut through on policy and content when you can often be sidelined by these very fringe distractions, including, you know, what hat someone's wearing or whether their haircut is any good. And Vida was also subject to that annoying, but also sometimes, I guess, insulting constant remarks about one's appearance. That's true. And the, what makes it even worse in Vida's case, I think, was that, that was, it was mostly admiring. Yeah. I mean, she never, got, she, she never got told that she was a battle axe or a bad person in that respect. But it was the fetching bonnets. It was the little rose-trimmed whatevers. And, you know, it was all that stuff. And she was always praised for the beauty of her dress. And, in fact, when you look at the photograph, she was pretty good. She turned out really, mm. really, really beautifully. She was beautifully turned out. But, um, you know, and if you sort of call, if you call people on that, they'll just say, but we said nice things about her, you know, as if, <laughs> as if, say, as if that counts really. And uh, yeah. as I say in the book, it's a pretty short road between Vida's fetching bonnets and Julie Bishop's red shoes. I mean, really, Mm. (laughs) it's never changed. And that brings in the role of the press, of course, which has been mostly unremittingly hostile to or reluctant to engage with women in that way. And I think Susan Ryan, the late Susan Ryan, would have agreed with that because she got a really bad rap when she wanted to take money away from private schools as you recall, she did. She got some, you know, she decided that they were all too rich. So the press gave her hell, absolute hell, and it was damaging the party. So she had to be demoted. She was. Yeah. Oh, so frustrating. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. It, it happens mm. so so many times across history. It repeats. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just finally, I wanted to bring in something else that is interesting to me in the sense that Vida never married or had children, which to me, it shouldn't be a big deal. But at the time, it no doubt might have been noted. But I wondered whether it was. Was that something anyone noticed? That's interesting, isn't it? No, because I think people took for granted at the time that any woman who was going to be prominent in or seek prominence in any public area was ipso facto not married or with children. Well, Enid Lyons knocked that one on the head with having 11 (laughs) kids or whatever she had in 1943. But I think that was part of it. She was never stigmatised as a spinster because she was far too stylish and smart for that. Mm. But I wonder too about, I mean, about her relationship. She was very close to Cecilia John, who was one of her great helpers during the um, World War I campaigns. They were close. They travelled together. They were a power unit. I am pretty sure they probably were a couple mm. because Cecilia did identify as lesbian, where Vida never did. But I think they probably were. But, I mean, you know, how do you know, really? It's, uh, I actually thought that Vida was one of these people who she never used, as far as I can work out, she never used sort of, she never flirted, she never did, she never did the sort of, made played those sort of 
sexy games with men. I mm. think she thought that the most important thing about her was always her work and her beliefs, and I think that was pretty consistent. It's really wonderful to see that that was an early role model, really, of courage of your convictions and doing whatever you think is right, even if it doesn't fit with the social norm of the time. Yeah, I think so too, yeah. yeah. Jacqueline, in terms of Vida, I mean, you must have gotten to know her so well in a way. Obviously, you never got to meet, but in a way you kind of have because you've consumed and read so much of her writing and also, of course, the, the people who knew her so well. And your subtitle for this book is A Woman for Our Time. And that resonated with me because I do feel getting to know her myself that she does feel like a very progressive, fresh, insightful person and even mm. some of the views and things that she was advocating on then have a lot of currency now. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to ask about her present day legacy and if you were thinking of ways that would appropriately recognise her achievements and her importance, of course this book is one great way of doing that, but are there things that you feel should be done or could be done to better remember great women like Vida Goldstein that you've gotten to know? Oh, yes. I think it would be one very good step would be to make the seat of Goldstein, which was gazetted in 1984, make that a very much woman's, make sure a woman always held it because it's never been held by a woman. I think um, Tim Wilson's the member now. No, Tim Wilson's the member now. But a couple of, you know, it's always been liberal held and held by a bloke. Mm. And and several of the people who have occupied that seat have beliefs that Vida would have absolutely excoriated. So (laughs) that would be one thing. Um, I don't know, things named after her, please, yes, you know, the usual things like, um, well, societies, lectures, hospitals, Mm. roads. It would be really nice if we were much more aware, and this is not just Vida, but it would be really, really good if we were much more aware of the people whose names, particularly women, whose names are given to things. You know, what is the Rose Scott lecture? Who is Rose Scott? That kind of thing. And I think we are notoriously bad at this. We really are. We do not put blue plaques up on places where famous people have lived, particularly famous women. And we really should because, honestly, dealing with Vida and all that, we do have quite a lot to be proud of and to recognise, and we should and we don't. Yeah, that's so, so true. And I think we should be walking through a park and seeing Vida's statue and going, hey, who was that person? Because we do that with lots of men who, you know, no doubt made contributions. But I think that visibility and acknowledgement of not just Vida, but as you say, these other great prominent women that you bring into this book really Mm. do deserve to be remembered far more than they are. And, um, yeah, I think this book is such a great way of remembering Vida. So I did want to say thank you for doing such a brilliant job with this book. You're a very talented writer. (laughs) And uh, I think you've really done her justice. Oh, thanks very much. And by the way, just to finish, maybe the listeners of Triple R can get a shilling fund going to get a statue going. What do you reckon? Oh, that's a great (laughs) idea. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast. 
Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.